Recovery Elevator, episode 218. So like in a perfect world, like that's what I would love to like, how I would love to see recovery, not as like this segregated, shameful, stigmatized thing, as like we're all human trying to help one another and get better. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got James. He's from New Jersey. He's 31 years old and has been sober since November 12th, 2016. Guys, the transformation James has gone through the past 850 days is nothing short of incredible. I've learned a lot from James and you're going to love this interview. I'm not sure if you know this, but Recovery Elevator is on Instagram. Basically, it's just me and my standard poodle, Ben, cruising around doing hikes in Montana, but occasionally I throw in some inspirational memes. Um, Yeah, so go ahead and follow us on Instagram. Support for today's episode is brought to you by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language with confidence. When Recovery Elevator went to Peru last year, Babbel was my go-to app to touch up on my Spanish, and it helped others on the trip learn to ask for grande soda waters with lime. That would be agua gaseosa con limón. When I went on vacation to Brazil in 2017, I wish I knew how to speak the language because it was not fun asking directions of how to return the rental car to the locals. I eventually figured it out. With Babbel, you can speak a new language with confidence. Choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, and German. Babbel is designed to quickly get you speaking your new language within weeks. Babbel's teaching method has been proven to be effective across multiple studies. Its convenient lessons are only 10 to 15 minutes long. Lessons are lovingly created by over 100 language experts, real people, and not by a translation machine. Right now, you can try Babbel for free. Download the app or text ELEVATOR, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R, to 484848. Again, text ELEVATOR, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R, to 484848 to try Babbel for free today. And don't forget about the free five-day video course. Simply go to recoveryelevator.com. On the front page, you can enter your email address, and instantly you'll get access to the free five-day video course. And after we hear from James, I'm going to talk to you about what is probably my favorite part about doing the whole Recovery Elevator project. Okay, let's get started. Today, I want to talk to you about relapse. Uh Uh-oh. Let's go ahead and cue scary music. Just kidding, we're not quite at that production level yet. If Relapse were a Halloween costume, it would win every costume contest entered. Wait a second, I actually was Relapse for several Halloweens. It wasn't fun, and actually it really wasn't that scary because it shouldn't be. So for some, and I've only met a few, Relapse isn't part of their story. But it is for the vast majority, and it's nothing to be ashamed about. Spontaneous sobriety which is where someone makes the decision to quit drinking and never looks back, is extremely rare, and this wasn't the case for me. I feel the word relapse is another word in recovery, similar to the word alcoholic, that needs to be thrown out. Because of its implications of failure, all is lost, and a need to start over. In addition, phrases such as slip up, off the wagon, and a whoopsie daisy also need to be set aside because they don't accurately describe what's really taking place. When we drink again after having made the internal declaration not to, we are simply doing additional field research or navel gazing, and we are learning precious lessons along the way. I personally needed to conduct volumes, tombs of field research. I had hundreds of day ones to learn the invaluable lessons that have built the foundations of my sobriety today. If you do find yourself in an intense period of field research, Self-compassion is key, and do your best to recognize this is all part of the process. One of the worst things that can happen is placing so much doom and failure on a relapse, the notion that a certain amount of sobriety time has been completely thrown away, that we end up hitting the fuck it button for the remainder of the week, month, or 2019. You may feel you've done enough research for you and your entire book club, but keep in mind The subconscious part of the brain, the unconscious mind, is usually sitting in the back of the classroom paying little attention. Some of you may be doing field research while listening to this podcast, and guys, this may sound strange coming from the recovery podcast host, that's completely fine. Simply said, relapse isn't that big of a deal. 
Stop placing success and failure parameters on if you drank last night or not. I'm a firm believer that if we start addressing what we're using alcohol to cover up, then relapse, aka field research, will become less frequent and even a thing of the past. If we address the higher questions, then the lower dysfunctions simply fade away. After some field research has been done, simply brush yourself off. Remind yourself you're doing your best and get back in the game. When you do find yourself on stable footing, beware of the three most dangerous words on this journey, which are, I got this. If your inner dialogue says something like, woohoo, we just went 30 days without a drink, I got this, try your best to observe where this voice is coming from. If it's from the gut or intuition, then maybe you do got this, that's great. But usually it comes from the ego, the protective personality. It's a voice that says, okay, Tammy, all right, Michelle, okay, Mike, we did this whole no alcohol thing for a while. We nailed it, rocked it out of the park. We went six months without a drink. We got this. Be very careful with those internal statements. In my personal experience, every time I said, hell yeah, Paul, we just went X amount of days without a drink. We got this. Immediately following that was usually more field research, aka relapse. So confidence is fantastic but it's vital we stay humble on this journey and try to recognize which voice is talking. What if I relapse? What if the recovery elevator guy relapses? Well, again, it's not the end of the world. I would simply embrace it as an opportunity to internally explore what's need to be revealed and changed in my life. If I could rub that magic genie lamp and have one wish, it wished to be I never have to do more research, but I've been around the block long enough to know this thing called Murphy's Law, and that anything can happen. And before we hear from James, let's hear from Green Chef. Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company, and meal plans include paleo, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, Mediterranean, heart smart, lean and clean, keto, gluten free, and omnivore. Let Green Chef do the meal planning, grocery shopping, and most of the prep for you week after week. You can switch up your meal plan whenever you're ready to try a new way to eat. Ingredients come pre-measured, perfectly portioned, and mostly prepped. Recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. Green Chef sent me over some meals, uh, keto-friendly meals, shall I say. I had some friends over, and we had a great time making these Green Chef meals. In fact, check out Instagram. I put some pics up. The Malaysian spiced pork chops were delicious. For $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us forward slash elevator, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R. Again, that's greenchef.us forward slash elevator. James, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for asking. Yeah, it is great to be back on the air with you. Guys, I interviewed James on episode 105 when he had 74 days of sobriety. And James, let listeners know right now, how long have you been sober? So I've been sober since November 12th, 2016, which gives me 850 days so a pretty big jump from the first time we spoke. Yeah, that is a huge jump. James, congratulations. How's it feel? Feels feels incredible. It's it's interesting talking to you now like kind of brings me back to that first time we spoke and it's like been it's like a complete 180. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I cannot wait to talk about the last 700 plus days of your journey. You've got some cool things going on currently in recovery. And we'll talk about that later on in this interview. But uh, listeners, if you want to get more in depth on James story, go back to episode 105. But he's also going to give give us a brief synopsis of, of his drinking background and then how he got here. But before we get there, James, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Sure, sure. So I am 31 years old. I'll be 32 in May. I grew up in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. I currently live in New Jersey with my wife. It's weird saying wife. We just got married in October. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. And our little uh, Pomsky, Milo. So we are currently in Jersey. I still work in Manhattan. And for fun, golf, love golfing, going to the gym, uh, hanging with my pop and my wife. Those are the things that uh, that make me happy these days. I hear you're a, uh, a big outdoorsman. You like to do camping, trekking, hiking, and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Peru was just incredible. I learned a lot about myself on the, on that trip to Machu Picchu, which was, uh, yeah, that was something else. Anytime I can do that, 
I don't think you know what you, you you don't know what you're in for until you actually do it, and you don't know what you've got from it until it's over. But it was uh, it was an incredible experience. And James, it was great to do the trail with you. And a great thing to come out of those trips was more self-reflection. And James, I, I give all the respect to you. At the end of the trip, you're like, guys, had a great time seeing one of the wonders of the world, hiking, trekking. I'm not a camper. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it was a. Uh... It was a, it was a big revelation for me to, because it was it was always part of my story. I mean, which I'll briefly talk about, but it was one of the major kind of forks in the road in my life was when I graduated college. I wanted I had no interest to go like sit behind a desk in an office in Manhattan. Like I had zero interest in doing that, and I wanted to go backpack across Europe with my teammate. One of our our other teammates lived in Barcelona. We were going to save up some money and go. Coming from the very close Italian family I came from, uh, my mom was like, you're not going, you need a job, blah, blah, blah. And I ended up taking it and I held a lot of resentment towards my mom for, that was when I was 21, for nine, 10 years. And on the mountain, I was just walking by myself and like, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, like, I'm not a backpacker. Like I would have never enjoyed that. Like I take three showers a day. Like, so that was completely out of my, uh, out of my realm, out of my comfort zone. And I just kind of let one of the things you said before we got on the, on the mountain, you're like, let shit go. And I let that go. And like, I came home, I told my mom and it was like a huge like breakthrough of kind of just like letting that go and moving forward. Yeah, that's equally as profound because we deepen with who we are on these trips. We listen to the body and we find out who we are, what direction we need to take. And then we also embrace who we're not. <laughs> and we can throw throw these roles and narratives just out of our life in this. And it feels good. Yeah. Well, James, give listeners a little background about your drinking. Describe your drinking habits. Maybe when you started, when you realized that it perhaps was becoming a problem. Did you ever put rules into place? Yeah. Bring, bring us up to speed. Cool. Um, yeah, I'll keep it pretty brief. I started uh, started drinking when I was about thirteen, um, just like stealing beers or wine coolers or whatever was in the in the liquor cabinet in our friend's house or my house or whatever. And then in high school, drank here and there, nothing like real crazy, but like I remember the first time I drank and like what it felt like, and it was good to to kind of feel comfortable f- for once because just growing up, I had a lot of which I'm learning now in my recovery is just like a lot of things that led me down that road of. I I was a late bloomer and my mom compared me to other people and my first girlfriend cheated on me. So like when I drank, it allowed me to kind of forget about all that in my my formative years. And then I went to uh, I went to college at Seton Hall University where I got a a golf scholarship. So going into it, I was really into golf and I was really into just making that kind of my life. And one of my teammates was actually a born again Christian. And uh, I I grew I grew close to him. I've always had even at a young age, I've always had like this existential crisis of like, why are we here? Right. And that kind of, that kind of helped because I was like going to Bible study. I was in the library. I was going to church and I, I stopped getting, I stopped drinking and I, I didn't get drunk my entire freshman year, which is very odd. And it was tough actually. Cause I mean, freshman year people go crazy. And my teammate from England was actually graduating and he was going away and we had a party and I drank that night and it was just, uh, I just picked off where I left off from high school and then it was just, it was off to the races. So from there, for all of college, the next three years was just binge drinking, dabbled with drugs here and there, but it was tough because we got drug tested. So barely smoked any weed. Uh, We did have access to painkillers, which I took, but I never really liked the way I felt on those. So college was just heavy drinking, like just four days in a row, waking up, uh, binge drinking, what typical college students do. So like, I didn't think much of it at the time. Um, and plus I was doing well in school, but the first time it hit me was my senior year of college and my coach called me in and I, me and my coach always had a good relationship and he called me in and this was the spring semester of my senior year going into the last, last season, um, for golf. And he's like, you don't have to come back anymore. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're just bringing down the team. He's like, you come into the weight room, you smell like liquor, you smell like booze. And we have a small team. There's only seven guys on the team. So one guy can kind of really bring down the whole morale. And he's just like, I don't want that. I don't need that on my team. Like it's our last, our last season. And he's like, you don't, you keep your scholarship. He's like, you just, you just don't have to come to practice anymore. And I was like, holy shit. And that was the first time, like it was apparent to me that my drinking was affecting other people. Like before I was just like, oh, I was hungover and like I would throw up or whatever. And it was just like, it was all fun and games because we were in college, but like hearing it from my coach was like, huh. And James, can you go into a little deeper of what it felt like in that moment when somebody on the outside called you out on your drinking? What did it feel like? Immediately, I was just embarrassed. Like that was the first thing. 
and like just the shame. And I walked out of the office though, and like I was just, I was sad. Like that was the that was the initial reaction. I was like really sad because I feel like I let my teammates down. I feel like I let him down. I kind of feel like I let my parents down because they invested a lot of time too, like helping me with golf, like driving me everywhere in high school. And I was like, am I really going to like, is this where it's going to end? Like with my last, last season of my senior year, like, is this where it's going to end? And I thought hard about it. And I told him, I was like, I don't want to do that. And I kind of curbed the drinking as much as I could to not be such a burden and not to be so avert about it for like those remaining three months or two months, whatever it was, because following through and finishing my season was more important. But yeah, it was just an overwhelming feeling of like, just like shame and embarrassment and just like, I was disappointed in myself and sad and all of that. So I made it through that. And then the whole back to the story of me going to, uh, to backpack, so it was 2010, the job market was was shit. And like I said, I never had interest of being like sitting behind a desk in a cube and crunching numbers and all of that. It was just not what I wanted to do in my life. And we had the, the luxury of our teammate being in Barcelona and the luxury of caddying at this really nice country club where we can make good money. And the second day I caddied, I met a man who I'm, who I'm still friends with, actually, who I talked to. I had lunch with uh, a month ago who offered me a job and a week later I took it. And that was like the beginning of the end for me. So from 21 till I graduated until 28 when I got sober was just, it was a quick progression. Like the drugs brought me to my knees a lot faster. So I was working on Wall Street. I worked there for three years, got heavy into cocaine. And then the cocaine led to pretty much anything else I could get my hands on. But cocaine was like my jam. Like every time I drank, I did coke. And that kind of went on for the next two, three years. And even at that time, it was still kind of fun. Um, like it was kind of like college people with money now. And it wasn't like something that was really uh, was really an issue for me until uh, I got the call that my grandfather committed suicide. So, oh, wow. so my grandfather, uh, we were very close, we had a great relationship, but he was an alcoholic and he was in the Korean War. And unfortunately, there was no help for people back then when they came back from the war. So he came back and he drank and he drank and he drank. And that's what he did until he kind of just started shutting down. And that was it. Put a gun in his mouth and, and that was that. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I went home for the funeral and the wake and all of that. But instead of like processing it and dealing with my emotions and being with my family, I hop in the car with my friend and I head to the Jersey Shore. Cause that was, that was the beginning of me escaping, like where I knew it, like I knew what I was doing and I was like, I just don't want to be around this. And I went and I did a bunch of drugs and I ended up somehow getting roped in with the cops, but the cops, I was on the phone with my mom and my mom ended up driving three hours the next day to come get me. And yeah, and, and I'm 24 at the time, 23 now and driving back, I was like to myself, I was like, something's not right here. Like something's off. Like, cause it, it stopped. It wasn't fun. Like I didn't go down there to have fun. I went down there to numb myself, but that was just kind of like a blip in the radar, you know, like it was like, uh, maybe something's wrong, but let's, let's power on. Yeah. It sounds like you kept going for another couple of years. Yeah. And then the next, so that was 23, 24. So the next four or five years, just heavy into drugs, heavy into gambling. I use sex all the time to escape too. So it was, it was the gamut. Every time I went out, it was drugs, sex, gambling, anything, anything to get outside of myself. And while I was doing this, the other stuff in my life was still happening. So my uncle died unexpectedly. My dad passed away. And these things just were happening. So like in the span of four or five years, I lost my grandfather, my uncle, my dad. And it was just a lot. And instead of kind of dealing with anything, I just, I ran away. And my my eject button was was the, the alcohol and the drugs. So 27, 28, I got really bad. And I ended up gambling a lot and I got in deep and I won a lot of money and I lost a lot of money and I ended up going to a nightclub, got arrested, possession of cocaine, theft, disturbing the peace, all that good stuff. So my whole family finds out now and it's kind of like out there and they kind of lead somewhat of an intervention. Uh, my mom is like, you either got to come home, you got to go to rehab or you go see a therapist. So at this time, like I know something's wrong. So I was like, all right, cool. I'll go see a therapist. Yeah, definitely. That was, that was the option I would have picked. Yeah. Therapist, let's do this. Yeah. 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 So the first therapist I go see, and like I've had, I've gone to like probably six or seven until I've been with the same one now for the last four years. But my first therapist was just like, yeah, why don't you, uh, why don't you just do less Coke? And I was like, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I was like, sure thing. Yeah, let's give let's give that a try. Clearly, that did not uh, work at all. So I stopped going to see him, and then that was when I was yeah twenty seven or twenty eight, and I it was in September because I got arrested on September eleventh. I remember that, and then that next February. So what was that? Four or five months later, I met I meet my current wife, and that changed a lot for me because she filled a void for me. I struggled with women. I had a lot of anger towards women. Still, I'm I'm it's a work in progress, which I'll talk about like kind of in my recovery. But she just filled a big hole for me in my life, and I wasn't going out as much. But it was kind of just like I was white knuckling it. So I'd go like two three weeks, and this is where I start putting all those like fun games in place uh, because I couldn't be as crazy as I was with my girlfriend because she just wouldn't deal with it, nor did I really want to go out as much. Um, so I was going out when I was single probably four or five nights a week. And then that, when I met her, I was like, I wouldn't go out at all for like two or three weeks. And then boom, it'd be like the apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. Go big. Yeah. Because like I was just holding it all in, not working on any of those unresolved issues and like thinking it'd all be okay. So this happened, this went on for two years, like the two, three weeks, everything's good. And then boom, explode. And I disappear for like a day or two. And everyone's like, what? Like this, this can't happen, especially my, my girlfriend. Cause like now this is now there's someone else in my life now. Right. So like, this is new to me and I see what I'm doing to her. So that, that went on. And then that's when I started putting all these like games in place. So I was like, all right, listen, we're going to go out and I won't, I'm not going to do any Coke. I'm not going to do any Coke. And then I started to go out like, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm not going to drink liquor. I'm just going to stick to beer. And none of this shit worked, clearly. So that went on, like I said, for two years. And then my dad, my dad passed away in August of 2016, August, August 6th. And I went out twice after he passed away. Wow. And the second time I went out, I was a disaster, obviously. And, but it wasn't like, there was no fun whatsoever. And I was, I wasn't even going out with, people anymore really it was mostly like like I went out for lunch with some coworkers, and like I just started to get drunk and got drugs and then I just went off on my own like hotel rooms and like I started I ended up smoking like I was smoking crack towards the end and it just it got dark it got really really dark and I remember coming home the next morning you know, like getting choked up I'm getting I remember coming home the next morning and it was like eight o'clock and I was supposed to meet my wife for dinner that Friday night and clearly I, I didn't show up and I blew her off and I was supposed to go to my niece's baptism class the next morning because I was the godfather didn't show up to that so I had probably I don't know 50 missed calls on my phone from family friends my girlfriend at the time and I got home and she was gone and she took Milo our dog uh, rightfully so and I just I came home and I sat on my bed and I, I just I cried and it finally, the pain got bad enough. There wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't many options left at that point. Like, especially when I got into like, to the, the heavy Coke and the crack and like, all. it's just like, I'm either going to go to jail, I'm going to die. There's no like in between here. And that's what I said earlier, the drugs brought me to my knees faster, which I'm grateful for. But then two days later, I checked myself into outpatient rehab and I've been sober ever since. Yeah, James, let's dive into that moment where you're sitting on the bed, you cried, and you realized there were no more options. There was nothing left to try. You had tried everything in the past, and we both know how that ends up. It didn't work. And this is surrender, right? This is the moment when we stop fighting, and with recovery, it can be confusing. The moment we stop fighting is actually when we become empowered, which is a crazy concept to embrace. But talk to us more about that moment. What did it feel like when you said, I'm done, I, f I quit? It was, I mean, it was just a sense of relief, like right from the get-go, because I immediately reached out to one of my friends who I used to party with and a friend from college who I just knew through Facebook and other friends who, that he's been, he got sober. And at that, that point it was so raw and fresh. Like no, none of my family, my girlfriend, no one wanted to talk to me. And this is what you realize now after being sober for some time of what you actually do to everybody else. And so they, they didn't want anything to do with me. So he was the first person I reached out to. And I remember go seeing, and I went to see him the next day. And he, he was just, he just celebrated a year and I saw how happy he was. And like, that was like a big moment for me because I was like, shit, like I could, I could, I, I could have that. So talking to him was a huge help. And then I called, I, I, I worked it out and I ended up doing uh, the IOP for 12 weeks. But that moment when I was on my bed, it, it was also like, I remember asking myself like this question, I was like, this is, is this how I'm going to honor my father? And I, to this day, I still ask, but like every, like every morning I wake up, I ask like, what kind of man do I want to be? And that kind of like shapes my day. Cause my, my father exemplified what it was to be a man, like husband, brother, father, like he was, he was it. And 
when he died, something changed for me. And it was like, I didn't feel this way when he was alive, but it was like, is this how I'm going to honor my father for the rest of my life? And in that moment, it was like, the answer was obviously no. And for it to happen, like I needed to make a change. So I don't believe he died in vain. Like I hold on to it every day that like he died to save my life. Like I firmly, firmly believe that. But it was all just, it was all like that realization in that moment. Like this is like, this is not how I want to live anymore. Wow. That's powerful, James. I recall at my grandpa's funeral in 2010, actually 2009, a couple months before I started my journey, I saw my grandpa. There's a photo of him in, during World War II. He was standing on top of a tank with a rifle on his shoulder. And same thing. I looked at that and I'm like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm just drinking my life away. And here's what he did. Those are powerful moments. And thanks for sharing. And, and, and so James, how did you do it? Once you finally surrendered, you reached that realization that alcohol's got to go. What was the first week like? The first month? How'd you do it? Well, one day at a time, obviously. Sure. But so the, I guess the good thing about the way I, I operated was I was never a, I was never a half in guy. I was a, I was either like I either drank or I, or I either like went out for two days or three days or four days at a time or I didn't drink. Like I never was like a glass of wine or a, a glass of scotch when I came home. Like I was never I was never that kind of person with anything I really did. Like even when in high school, when I was playing golf, it was like, I quit basketball because I wanted to focus on golf. Like everything was always so black and white for me, which I'm trying to live in the gray now. But it served me well in the beginning of my recovery because once I like decided I was going to get sober and stay sober, I just dove in. So like, that's when I found your podcast. I started reading a lot. I was doing IOP. I started group therapy. I was going to therapy three times a week. So I just like threw myself in. Uh, I was going to AA. Like, so I, I tried everything to see what would work. And I guess I kind of had an unconventional, I guess, recovery because I don't rely technically on really one thing. So the first week was obviously tough. And I remember sitting in LP, like, what am I doing here? Like, I don't belong here. And doing the whole comparing thing, right? Like, oh, this guy's worse than me, all that. And I almost left, but I related to the guy who ran our group at IOP and I don't know, I stuck around and I ended up actually enjoying it by the end of my 12 weeks there because I had to go four days a week for 12 weeks after work. Yeah, in the beginning it sucked and it was tough, but the best thing for me in the beginning especially, and it wasn't a secret that I had issues or problems and because I wasn't like a closet drinker. I was, like you knew I was there. Like I was between the Coke and the booze and everything else I was on. I was very like gregarious and out there. So when I told people I was going to rehab, people were like, yeah, man, you probably should have went like two or three years ago. <laughs> so like, so luckily I didn't have that like secret of like, like holding on to like, oh, people are going to be like, oh, I didn't realize. Like everybody knew, not to the extent, obviously, of how bad it was, but they they knew. But I came out to everybody, like my boss, my CEO, my manager, my coworkers. Like it was, it was just like a very therapeutic thing for me. And I don't know to this day, I don't know why it was came easier to me or what but it was the best thing i ever did because i finally wasn't living two lives like i could finally breathe and like i wasn't hiding i didn't have any secrets i didn't have all the guilt and the shame because that's the shit that brought me down it was just like unbearable to, to hold on to all that stuff and just like screaming it from the rooftops like i need help i have to get help like this is what's been going on uh completely changed that was like the beginning of like going into the whole process it made everything much easier for me James, the minute I uploaded the podcast, episode one, it felt two things. Number one was like, oh, fuck, what did I just do? But number two, this this this, this wave of calm came over me because for me, it, it was a secret. And, and my drinking was the deepest, darkest secret I held for a long time, for probably nearly a decade. But when I finally uploaded it, and then when I came out on Facebook, like I, I just felt so good. And for you, James, you lived two extremes, right? For one, you're drinking, you're partying, and then sobriety comes. You go all the way to the other side, a clean and sober life to that extreme. What was that transition like for you? Because it's difficult for a lot of people. It was. It was. I mean, it was. It was very hard. But for me, it was almost like I was going back to the person that I, I knew I was the whole time. So that's another thing I struggled with and the reason why – I reached out to you in the first place when I was listening to your podcast. I'll never forget. You had an episode on cognitive dissonance and it's such, it struck such a chord in me that I, that's what I emailed you. And I was like, this is like, I, like I felt the whole thing that you were saying. It really resonated with me because like, even at a young age, I feel like, I feel like I'm just going back to the person. Like I, I was, I was the whole time, if that makes any sense. And I found like, I saw a glimpse of that when I went to college. Like that, that freshman year when I was like in the library on Friday and Saturday nights and reading and going to Bible study, 
that's not far off from who I am right now. I don't, I'm not as like into like Catholicism or Christianity like I was back then, but the whole idea of just, just learning more about myself and just the world in general and, and trying to help people like that's what I was like back then. So it was like almost like a relief. Like I could finally be who I'm, I want to be. If that makes sense. James, it makes sense. And this is a cool topic in recovery right now. And to be honest, recovery, right? I, I, it's in the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Wow, I like to use the word is recovered. We are going to recover who we're supposed to be. And like you mentioned, this is what this is. Like we are going after that young, tender, innocent soul that's always been there in the first place. We can think back in the first couple of years of life, you know, five and under, age six and under, we could just be lost within our own self and in a good way. And because we were whole and, and, and we didn't need anything external to change for us to be whole inside. And that's what this journey is all about. We're trying to go back to recover the person that we're meant to be. Does that sound about right? I mean, you nailed it. My formative years, that three, four year span of my mom always comparing me to other people and me being a late bloomer and like then the first girl I fall in love with and like completely open up to cheated on me really Really, it, it hurt me, right? And, I, and then I just try to bury that for my whole life. So going back to my recovery, I was in I was in therapy one day, and I was sitting with my therapist, and I was saying this to myself. And this is I've been going to therapy for four years now, and I'm like I'm 31 years old. Like when am I going to stop blaming my mom for like who I am today? And at that moment, I was like I need to bring my mom into therapy. So I brought my mom into therapy a couple times, and it was a game changer for us. Completely uncomfortable. I almost canceled that morning and called out of work and didn't even go into the city because it was scary. I didn't want to do it, but it was the most therapeutic thing I've ever done with my mother. But during one of those sessions, she brought up something that I totally forgot about. And she said, as a kid, you wanted to be a cop. And she told me like, no, you don't want to be a cop. You want to be an FBI agent. So like it was even at that moment as a little kid, like she always tried, like being a cop wasn't good enough for her. Right. It was like, it was like it started at a very young age. And these are things like I didn't even know, right? So like just like learning, just even learning about that about myself, like that's what I wanted to do as a kid. And just the way she responded, it made sense, like exactly how we ended up where we are with our relationship. But after that therapy, like one of the things I've really, and especially in the last six months or so, I stopped playing the victim card. I used to look at myself as a victim and like you'd be like, you would be an addict too if this all, if your grandfather committed suicide and your dad died and your girlfriend cheated on you. That was my narrative. All that narrative did was hold me back. And it held me back because I was trying to protect myself. Like I didn't want to get hurt. I didn't want to get uncomfortable. But it was time for that to change. And like in the last six months, I've made a complete shift in the narrative of like, I'm not the victim anymore. Like all this stuff happened for a reason. And this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And it's time to stop blaming all that stuff and become the person you're supposed to be, which is why I'm, I'm doing what I'm currently doing with this new this new project and whatnot. But yeah, it was a complete shift in attitude and perception on everything. And through those therapy sessions with my mother, I had empathy and sympathy for her because she dealt with an an alcoholic father. So these are things I just didn't look at, like, you you know, and you don't realize. And it's just a complete switch. It was a complete switch for me. Not playing the victim role is basically the holy grail in life. And we can't can't control everything externally, but what we can control is our response. And like you said, you were kind of unaware of some of this stuff before, and I bet it's liberating to understand that everything happened for a reason that, but it also everything happened for your benefit in the past. Does that sound about right? Totally. It's like that. Uh, I forget who said it, but it's like once you once you get to that moment where you realize life's not happening to you, it's happening for you. Like it's everything changes, and that's why I said the last six months have been really the where it's all really changed for me. Is just my perception and attitude towards everything is completely, completely different than it used to be, which has made all the difference in my recovery. Yeah, before we get to what you're working on these days in your recovery, talk to us about year one and year two. What you learned in year one and year two, and what were the differences between the two? I guess the classic like pink cloud was de- I definitely had it. It was new. It was it, I felt great, and towards the end of year one, I started to struggle a bit. But then I hit my year, and like I kind of got rejuvenated, and then I booked the trip to uh, to Peru, uh, with you guys, and then like. Month 13th, 14, 15, things took another turn. And I guess like there's ebbs and flows, but it was just dark. And like I started asking myself, like, is this what I got sober for? And like just really doubting like my whole, like this whole thing, right? And <laughs> I don't believe in coincidences anymore. So 
I've heard about ayahuasca and like, so one of the things that I, I heard through a friend and then I was looking into doing it because I was going to Peru and then literally two days later you came out and said you did it. So that's when I called you. We had a conversation and I ended up booking a retreat at the tail end of, of Peru after we hiked uh, Machu Picchu. And I was like, I said, I got married in October and it's, it's March now and that's been like the last six or seven months. And I listen, I'm not going to say it was a magic bullet by any stretch of the imagination. I'm still the same person. It, it, but it's changed my perception on things. I've exp- I experienced something during that ayahuasca experience that I never was able to experience before. And that was just a complete connection of like my mind, body, and soul. And it, it changed everything for me. And that's when I came out with that new attitude and new perception on things where I'm not the victim anymore. Like this is where I'm supposed to be. And it just really, it just, it was a culmination. Like I got married in October. I, we hiked Machu Picchu. I did ayahuasca and it just like, it was a lot and it took a while to process, but I feel like I, like the last month or so, even I'm really catching my stride and kind of taking everything I learned in that month, which is a lot. But like I said, it's just been a complete change in, in the way I look at things. That's a huge last couple of months of, of personal growth, James. And, and I recall, I, th- I think you said to a group, I was on a group chat, you said something that one of the, one of the lessons you learned is that you no longer have to be the biggest guy in the room. Talk to us about that. So the first night, the first ceremony I, 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 I did, there was, uh, I think there's seven of us in uh, going through the ceremony. And one of the, the gentlemen there was, um, he was from New Zealand and he was covered in tattoos, dreadlocks, played, uh, played rugby. He's bigger than me, right? And for context, I'm like, I'm like 6'3", like 220 pounds. Like I'm a bigger guy. And I've always, that was like my, I, I identified as that. So when I was a late bloomer, and I got picked on and made fun of, I was like, okay. I flipped the switch and I was like, I'm gonna overcompensate. And I was going to the gym and like, that's just who I was. Like I identified myself as the biggest guy in the room. Like I wanted to be the biggest guy in the room. And during my experience, he embraced me from behind with like out any, like it just happened because I was, I was weeping during the experience and I heard someone call my name and it was him next to me and he came from behind me and he's like, let it out and he was holding me like a little baby. And he was like, let it out, let it out, let it out. And I was like audibly getting louder and louder and louder. And I just like released all this stuff. And then he like sat me back up and then I just continued on with the ceremony. But like the biggest is like, I don't have to be the biggest guy in the room anymore. I was like, it was in an instant. Like it was just like, holy shit, like I can let that go. And it's the ego. That was like all it was. It's like, I don't have to, to do this anymore. And it was such a relief. Like it was crazy. It's just, it was a very wild, wild experience. And I was supposed to do three ceremonies and I did one and I told the shaman the next day, I was like, I got everything I need. Like the, what I, the message was so clear and the, and the message is like, it sounds like so corny and kumbaya, but like love is all you need, but it's so true. And this experience allowed me to feel it, which I haven't been able to do. And that just made all the difference for me. It really did. And James, I went through something similar this last year, and I, and I recognized two things. Number one, the answer was always within. I always had it there the whole time, which is a powerful thing. to. It's amazing to get there. It's like hand to forehead. Oh, shit. The answer was there all along. And number two, I no longer have to play the role, the identities. I no longer have to fit into these identities that I made for myself for the past 30-plus years. And that is a liberating feeling. Yeah, I mean, there's no other way to put it besides it is it's it's, it's such a it's such a weight off your shoulders, and that's what I was able to feel just like peace. I felt peace during that experience for the first time, and that's what it was. It was just letting go of all of this this idea of who I am. I'm I work on Wall Street. I make this money. I have this job. I, I I'm a VP of this, or I have this car. Like none of that shit matters. None of that shit matters, and it's so clear during that experience. And like you know it logically, but like I was able to feel it. And it, yeah, it's just, it's been a complete game changer for me that I don't have to identify myself with these materialistic things. And don't get me wrong. It's still a work in progress. It's still a struggle. I still have an ego. Like it doesn't, it's not good. It hasn't gone away, but it's a start, you know, it's a start to work on and to be aware of. I mean, awareness is, is half the battle. So, but yeah, it's a work in progress and it's, it's been uh, it's been incredible. Yeah, a lot of people think complete ego disillusionment is the goal just in recovery in general, but that's not even that's not even possible. A, we need the ego, we need the thinking brain at times 
to think back of experiences and make better informed decisions in the future. But really what we want to do is just reprioritize the ego. I know for myself, when I first got sober and not until very recently, ego was number one by a long shot. Now I feel it might be like three or four, right? Somewhere down the list. It's like you said, there's, it's always a work in progress. And James, let's talk about this next really interesting chapter of your life. It's got to be scary. It's got to be fun. It's got to be exciting on the Inca trail. You voiced it. You made this public to everybody. He said, hey, guys, I'm thinking about leaving my job on Wall Street and going into the recovery world. I'm going to be a recovery coach. We bounced some names off each other. You crowdsourced a little bit. Talked about you know, your methodology, what your teachings were going to be, what you thought about addiction, et cetera. And, and right now, you, it's Cardamone Coaching. Talk to us about this whole project. This is awesome. Yeah, yeah, no. So, I mean, like, so from the back, back in the beginning, like, even as a kid, like, I always felt like I, I wanted to help people. And I feel like this is the perfect opportunity to do it. And I wanted to get into this. I've talked about it for a little while. And then when it was me, you, Patrick and Katie, before even everyone else came, I remember sitting at dinner and you're like, I want to write a book. And I was like, I want to be a recovery coach. And you're like, all right, well, let's hold each other to it. And I'll never forget, I looked on Facebook and I saw you like going through, like putting like your brain thing down of like all your ideas for the book. I was like, oh shit, like I haven't done anything to be, uh, <laughs> be the recovery coach. But like, this is where those realizations popped in my head of like, it just hit me like one day, I was like, what's, what's really holding you back from doing this? And like, these are the stuff, this is the stuff that happens now that never happened before is like, just being more mindful of things and like, when I make decisions, how do they serve me? And like, when I do things like, okay, why did I do that? Or just ask myself, like, why, like what's holding you back? Like, why are you not doing this? And the answer is always fear for the most part, at least it was for me. What if I fail? What are people going to think of me? All of that stuff. And I was like, you know what? That's all bullshit. So I immediately went online. I signed up for the certification, took the classes and I got certified to be a recovery coach. So the past, I think it's been like a two month thing now or a month and a half. Yeah, I've just been coming up with different ways of different ideas of how, how I'm going to approach this and whatnot. And I, I, I tried to outsource the website and stuff. And it didn't work out. And I ended up going to, to Squarespace and kind of doing it on my own. And it was really fun to do. And I had no experience doing it. But it's been a whole thing's been a learning experience so far. Um, and uh, I'm excited to do it. And obviously, I'm scared because the idea is to help people in recovery. I mean, like, that's my goal. And all I'm going to try to do is just use my experience t- to do it. So like, that's kind of where I'm at. But like, yeah, my methodology, I guess, is, I mean, this is a much broader conversation. We could probably have a whole podcast on it. But like, I think the way we do addiction and the way we treat addiction and recovery is just completely wrong. And I I mean, I think me and you are on the same page with a lot of this stuff. It's like, and more recently, I've been thinking about it. It's like, we put all these labels on ourselves. It's like, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. She's an addict. She's an alcoholic. This is AA. Let's separate ourselves but like we're all human and everybody struggles and everybody escapes in some way. And it's never about the drinking or the drugs or the alcohol. It's never about any of that stuff. It's about getting to like the root cause of everything and everybody has something. So like in a perfect world, like that's what I would love to like, how I would love to see recovery, not as like this segregated, shameful, stigmatized thing as like, we're all human trying to help one another and get better. It just so happens that I went to alcohol and drugs, which are very highly addictive, and that's the route I went. But people shop, people play video games for 13 hours, people escape, and people struggle. And all I want to try to do is just be open and honest with my my recovery and my journey so far, and like lend a hand. And there's other ways to get sober. Like this one story I heard about this guy from from AA. It, this is one thing that killed me, and one of the reasons why I wanted to do it is you're sober for three and a half years, really awesome recovery did service, was a, had, went through the steps. He was a sponsor, had sponsees, went to the same meeting, home group. Like I said, sober for three and a half years, met a girl at the meeting, started dating. It didn't work out. He stopped going to that meeting and he relapsed. And it was an eye-opening, it was eye-opening to me because I was like, if, this, if you just rely on one thing to keep you sober, like what happens if something, like if that goes away, which had happened to him and he ended up relapsing. Yeah, that's a great point. So like the way I want to look at it is like, like I don't have just one thing. Like I, I go to the gym in the morning. I meditate in the morning. I, I read on my commute to work. I go to AA. I go to therapy still twice a week. I go to group. I have men's groups. Uh, I, these retreats have changed my life. So like there's other ways. And like just in, and all that goes back to is just meeting new people and having a sense of community at the end of the day. But having different avenues like maybe some days I don't feel like going to the gym, right? And then like I can read or I can listen to a podcast. I have other outlets in my sobriety kind of tool belt, I guess if you want to call it. 
I don't, I don't rely on just one thing and I want to give people the option or just like show them that there's other ways to get and stay sober other than the traditional 30 day inpatient, go to AA, home group, sponsor, work the steps and then like that's it. Like I just, I want to, I want to let people know that there's other ways to do it. James, I can get on board with all of that you just said. I love it. And and where can people find this? It's cardamonecoaching.com. Can you spell yeah, it out? Cardamone, C-A-R-D-A-M-O-N-E, coaching.com. Yeah, and then everything's, I mean, everything's on the website, just kind of a little, little about me so people are aware uh, of just who I am, obviously, and kind of like my methodologies and, and whatnot. And it's just, yeah, it's just I'm trying to give people another avenue. Because even sometimes therapy doesn't work for people because they're sitting across from someone who can't reveal anything about themselves because they're under HIPAA or under certain rules. Like one of the things that's been, been that's worked tremendously for me and my growth and just meeting people in general is I, for better or worse, I'm very open and honest about everything. And what I found is when I'm open and honest, other people are able to be open and honest with me. I mean, at the end of the day, that's that's the foundation of the relationship. So. And I'm able to do that as a coach. I, I don't, I'm not restricted to anything. So hopefully that can be a breath of fresh air for some people and it can help. Yeah, and the credentials and certifications are great, but you've got the most important credential of all time. That's real life experience. You went through it, right? You've, you've done it every step of the way. And James, before you hit the rapid fire round, I, I saw your registration come in for the Bozeman retreat this August. I'm so pumped to hang out with you again. What are you looking forward to about this retreat? It's going back to Bozeman. I love it. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge change of pace for New York City. No, I mean, hopefully seeing the same people from Peru and different people too. I mean, that's like, that's the thing. It's like, I still, we still, I'm still in contact with people I've met on these, on these retreats and everybody lives in a different part of the world, but like everyone just comes together for those, whatever, whether it's 10 days or three days. It's just, like I said, I mean, the retreats have changed my life. Like there's no two ways about it. Like in the beginning, I was nervous. Now, like I'm, like I'm just, I'm like I can't wait for August. Yeah, yeah, me too. I was super nervous putting these on, and and, and they've changed my life as well, James. And that became clear after Nashville this this couple couple months ago. I left a changed person. My heart was so full. It was a great feeling. And thanks for being a part of it, James. Yeah, no, it's great. Obviously, you know the impact you have on people, but I mean, you've had a profound effect on impact on my my recovery and my sobriety. So. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. But it's a it's a two way street. <laughs> it's, it's a two way street. Like it's it's a, the full circle of life. I get so much in return that it's just incredible. It's incredible. Okay, we have reached the rapid fire round. You answered a couple of these in the interview, so I'll skip a couple. First question, James: What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? How are you going to get day eight fifty one, eight fifty two, etc.? Uh, just continue to, to continue to do what I'm doing. Stay stay the course, uh, one day at a time, and uh, try to. It's, it's funny. It's, things are different for me now, the way I look at things. Um, but just really uh, in helping people. I mean, like this new avenue I'm taking, I'm really, I'm really excited and focused on it. With almost two and a half years of sobriety, what's your favorite resource? I would say reading, reading, reading. I, I must have read, I think, like 35 books in the last two and a half years, which has been obviously went to, from zero. So uh, reading has really, uh, really opened me up to a lot of different things. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? It gets better. I mean, that's the the biggest thing. The the one the when I first met that kid, uh, my friend still, he said, "You never have to feel this way ever again if you don't pick up a drink or pick up a drug." And that was uh that was the best thing I I was I needed to hear it, and it was still the best thing I hold on to that. I was like, "You never have to feel this way ever again." And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? You're good enough. You're good enough. I wish that is something that I finally feel for the first time. And third, I'll be 32 in May. I finally feel like I'm good enough, but I wish I knew that earlier on. We're all good enough. We always were good enough. Uh, and I think the, the sooner you can come to that realization, the more powerful I think it will be for you. And James, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line. <laughs> uh, you might be an alcoholic if you get arrested outside of a nightclub with drugs in your pocket, a stolen credit card, and no shoes on. <laughs> oh, the no shoes. You left that out earlier. <laughs> yeah. Not sure why. I couldn't tell you. Yeah. And James, I cannot wait to hang out with you in person in a matter of months back in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, I'm pumped. Uh, thanks for having me on, Paul. Guys, perhaps my favorite part of doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is hearing from you guys and seeing these life transformations take place. I never get sick of reading these emails or witnessing it in person. 
I often get emails from listeners who have been sober for a year, two years, and they give me a synopsis of what's happened in their life. And I just say, holy shit, we're talking a complete life transformation for the better. Just like we heard from James in his interview. James is walking the walk and it's been fun. It's been a pleasurable experience to sit and watch this tremendous amount of personal growth take place in people's lives. It's incredible. Now, if you do find yourself with a good chunk of sobriety time where you're logging significantly more time away from alcohol than with, and you haven't experienced this life transformation, be patient. What's usually happening during this phase of your life is you're building the foundation for this next stage of your life to unfold. You're building the healthy thought patterns, the healthy routines needed for the next stage, the next evolution of your life to occur. And once the universe recognizes that it's time to make these changes in your life, that you have the sturdy footing needed, then watch out because it gets exciting and the ball starts rolling fast. Again, I love hearing from listeners. So please send me an email to info at recoveryelevator.com and let me know about your life transformations. I absolutely love reading them. All right, Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. This is an inside job. It always has been, always will be. I love you guys. We can do this. Mm -hmm.